Whether you love it, whether you hate it, whether you're indifferent to it, the reality is social media is now an established part of the world in which we live. And it's not just the young people who are using it anymore. Older people are too. It's not just the cool kids on the coast that are using it. It's us in flyover country who are too. It's not a soon fading fad any more so than Gutenberg's printing press was a soon fading fad. And I think that printing press comparison is appropriate because social media has absolutely revolutionized the way that information today is disseminated and spread. That being so, it's not as though social media is immune from criticism. It's not as though we don't have genuine concerns and that there aren't cautions we ought to take when we use it, if we choose to use it. For instance, the ways in which we scroll and scan and stare and how often we do so might give us some significant data points about what's going on in our heart, and namely whether we've created a pocket-sized idol in our heart. For instance, social media can highlight how suddenly anyone, literally anyone, can become an immediate proclaimed expert on anything. Overnight, anybody that has a pulse, opinions, and thumbs can be an expert. They can become an overnight news journalist or a social commentator or meteorologist or literary critic or Monday morning quarterback or public theologian or you name it. Well, another thing social media has done in recent years is it's opened the door wide open to this new crop of self-appointed ministers. Those who have propped up these online presences and personas which have attracted tens if not hundreds of thousands of followers. Some of these social media-based ministers are the influencer type, whose ministry is all about themselves and their brand. These are the guys who got saved a year ago, and they're already writing books and hosting conferences and podcasts, and are starting churches and seminaries. Then there are the the money-grubbing huckster types, whose ministry is all about turning a profit. Uh, Then there are those who I like to call the, the travel channel ministers, They punch their passports on the dimes of their followers. They dig wells. They deliver care packages. They mention Jesus from time to time. But what they really enjoy is feeling the feeling of sand between their toes while they say what they're doing is doing ministry. All that to say, the concept of what it means to do ministry has really been flattened out and watered down in our social media-driven age. I bring all of this up to walk us up to our text for this morning, where we're going to see Paul, the Apostle Paul, modeling for the Colossians and for us an entirely different type of ministry. Paul's ministry didn't gleam or sparkle or or shine in the eyes of his fellow man. Paul's ministry wasn't based on building a following or, or, or a platform or a name. His ministry didn't have a subscribe button or a like button or a follow button attached to it. No, his ministry was one which compelled him to expend himself and to pour himself out for the sake of the church. His was a hardworking, a dedicated, a prayer-fueled, a Christ-exalting, an others-focused ministry. And his ministry is an example we'd all do well to consider and to emulate as we go back to our text or enter our text for the first time. Colossians 1, 24 through 27 is our text for this morning. Colossians chapter 1, 24 through 27. God's word reads, 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In our text for today, we're going to see that Paul's ministry wasn't about followers or a fanfare. It wasn't about popularity or acclaim. It wasn't about clout or sway. No, Paul's ministry was purely the ministry of the mystery. His ministry was centered on sharing the good news of the gospel. And narrowing that down a bit, his ministry was on sharing with Gentiles, those who weren't of Israel, people like the Colossians, people like most in the room here, you and me, that God's plan of redemption had now been extended not only to Israel, but to them. And as we're going to see this morning, Paul had a ministry that was supremely focused on the church. He was a man who modeled for all future followers of Christ what it means to suffer for the church, what it means to serve the church, and what it means to show the church. In fact, those are going to be our three points for this morning as we work our way through this text, as we consider how Paul, in his ministry of the mystery, suffered for the church, served the church, and showed the church. And as we get rolling this morning, I'd like to take a moment to highlight the fact that our text for today really marks a shift, a a transition in Paul's letter to the Colossians. As we look back through the text and where we've been so far in Colossians 1, we've seen earlier that Paul uses these various third-party statements, third-person statements in referring to Christ. He is before all things. He is the head of the body. It was the the Father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in him. And then in last week's text, we saw Paul shift more to the second person, where he goes more into the you are type of statement to describe these early Colossian believers and their status before God. Now, in today's text, Paul's moving into the first person. It's I am. Here's a bit about me, Paul is saying here. He's shifting his focus to give the church at Colossae some autobiographical information about himself. That's a bit uncharacteristic for Paul, is it not? To talk about himself at length as opposed to building up other believers in the faith, as opposed to exalting Christ and making God's glory known. And there must be a reason for this, right? That Paul would suddenly shift to the first person and suddenly be talking about himself? Well, there sure is. See, it all comes back down to this theological controversy I've been laying out for you in in multiple prior messages about this idea or this false teaching that was starting to percolate and brew there in Colossae. It all comes back to Epaphras hoofing his way 1,300 miles to Rome to visit Paul there in this, this prison cell. So that he could explain to Paul what was happening back in, in the homeland in Colossae in that little town about this heretical teaching that was now developing and brewing there. We know that there were those who were promoting this false teaching back at Colossae and that that teaching was making inroads. We know that these teachers had some degree of sway back at Epaphras' church. And we know all of this because of what Paul says just down the page in Colossians 2.4. Look down the page at Colossians 2.4 where Paul says, I say this, meaning all that he said in Colossians up to that point, so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. 
so that no one will delude with persuasive argument. Paul here isn't speaking in the abstract. He's not speaking out of turn here. Rather, he knew that those who were pushing the Colossian heresy were persuasive promoters. And with their silver-tongued speech and their highbrow rhetoric, they were finding some success in getting their dangerous ideas to stick. And they were finding some success in persuading this young and impressionable church that their ideas were valid and that their credentials were valid and that their teachings ought to be considered. In response to which, Paul here in our text for today throws a flag. As he reminds this church here at Colossae, not only who it was who was telling them the truth, but who actually had their best interests at heart. And the answer to both of those was him, Paul. With that background in view and established, I actually want us to read through the text again and to do it with that context in mind. As, as we consider these look-down-their-nose promoters of the Colossian heresy, and as we consider Paul and his evident love for this dear church, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, the promoters of the Colossian heresy could have never made such a statement of care and interest and concern for this church. Only Paul, as a, the apostle to Gentiles like these, could make such a claim. And in fact, only their actual pastor, Epaphras, could have said such a thing. Actually, a little bit later in this letter, turn over with me to Colossians 4, we'll see Paul commending Epaphras, the, the local pastor here, for his love for this church. Look at Colossians 4, picking it up in verse 12. It says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Herapolis. The point is that men like Paul and Epaphras had the Colossians' best interest at heart. The promoters of the false teaching that was happening there did not. So what Paul was doing here was he's modeling spiritual leadership and how that ought to look in a local church, in a church context, which is far from what the social media shepherds of today's world are doing. So that brings us to our first point for this morning. And what we're going to do in this first point is consider through the lens of Paul's writing here, what it means to suffer for the church. What it means to suffer for the church. Look again at verse 24, chapter 1. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now before we dive too deeply into what Paul is saying here, I want you to notice that very first word here, now. That's a connecting word which links back to what Paul said in the immediately previous verse, verse 23, where we saw Paul last week saying that he was made a minister. That's the last few words there, verse 23. I, Paul, was made a minister. A minister of what? Well, if you go back further in verse 23, we see what he was made a minister of. He was made a minister of the gospel that you heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. 
Paul was a minister of a singular message, the gospel, not a gospel, not one of many gospels. He was a minister of the most powerful message that has ever been proclaimed on earth, that of sinners being saved based on the the death of Jesus Christ and, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that message was now being proclaimed, he says, verse 23, in all creation under heaven. And note, as we saw last week, that Paul became a minister of that gospel, not by self-promotion or self-advancement or ladder climbing. Rather, he was made a minister. That is, God made him a minister. God distinctly set Paul apart for this work. Paul had received his authority from God. He'd been placed in this position by God. He had been entrusted with a message by God. And that message that he had been entrusted with could not be altered, could not be changed, could not be added to, and could not be taken from, notwithstanding the efforts of the false teachers in this city. And now as we move back into verse 24, we see this one aspect of Paul's God-given ministry, which is that he would suffer. For this dear church. Look at the beginning part of verse 24 again. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now Paul here isn't speaking allegorically or hyperbolically. We know that he did in fact experience suffering. And had a real ministry of suffering. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 9 if you would. Acts chapter 9. The scene here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Nine, the scene here is that after Paul's conversion, he has this Damascus Road experience. And then after the Damascus Road experience, there's this man named Ananias who's suspicious about whether Paul's conversion was real, whether it was legitimate, or if he had reason to be concerned. Look at Acts 9. We'll pick it up in verse 10. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, that's you, Ananias, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. In essence, Ananias here is openly suspicious, and we might say, humanly speaking, rightly suspicious of of Saul. But look at the words of assurance that come from the Lord himself in verse 15. It says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And then look at what gets emphasized in verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So it's right there. God had appointed Paul to, among other things, suffer. And to suffer for his name's sake. And suffer Paul did. Which is why he says things like in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. Or actually, go with me over to 2 Corinthians where Paul gives his most comprehensive catalog of the sufferings he experienced in fulfilling his God-given ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11, and we'll start in verse 24, where Paul lays out all that he went through for the sake of his calling. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four: Five times I received from the Jews... 
39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangerous from rivers, dangerous from robbers, dangerous from my countrymen, dangerous from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. In other words, Paul was no stranger to suffering. He knew what it was like to have whips laid across his back. He knew what it was like to have rods crack him in the ribs. He knew what it was like to have stones thrown at him, pelting him and bruising him. He knew suffering. And he knew, importantly, what his suffering pointed to, which was the infinitely greater suffering that had been experienced by Christ his Lord. Paul spoke often about the suffering of Christ and how he was sharing in Christ's sufferings. Romans 8, 17, Paul says, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. 2 Corinthians 1, 5, Paul says, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. Paul was also very aware of the modeling effect that his own suffering was to have on those who were following his example. For instance, in 2 Timothy 2, 3, he says to Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And here we see back in our text, Colossians 1.24, that Paul not only speaks of suffering and what his suffering models and what his suffering points to, he says he suffers with joy. That's what it says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Knowing that he was doing the Lord's work and carrying out the Lord's will as he ministered to these early Gentile believers there in Colossae brought this apostle great joy, even joy in his suffering. And that's a theme we also see Paul develop at length in his other writings, that of rejoicing in suffering. Romans 5.3, he says, we exult in our tribulations. 2 Corinthians 7.4, he says, I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Those words to the human intellect and human wisdom don't make sense together. But Paul's was a joy that was anchored in, as we're going to see later today, this hope of glory. His future eternal reward. And it wasn't only Paul who spoke of having this type of joy, joy in suffering. We see it also throughout various parts of scripture. We think of Acts chapter 5 where Peter, early in his ministry, along with other apostles, is imprisoned and he's flogged by the Jewish authorities for proclaiming the gospel there in Jerusalem. And then when he and they get released... Acts 5.41 records, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. And then later in life, the apostle Peter expresses his thoughts on this topic of joy and suffering in greater depth. 1 Peter 4.12 and 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And James, we studied James at length last year. He had some thoughts on this subject. He chimed in as well. James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. But back to Paul and his letter to the Colossians here, this wasn't aimless suffering that he was going through. This wasn't purposeless suffering. No, he says right here in the text, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
As we've already seen in this study of, of this letter, as Paul was writing these words to this church at Colossae, he was imprisoned in Rome. And here in our text, he's letting the Colossians know that the suffering that he was going through in that Roman cell, he was going through on their behalf. The dark and the bleak surroundings, the cramped and the tight quarters, the shackles and the chains he was going through on their behalf. And he was not only going through all of that, he was rejoicing that God had given him that great privilege to do so. For them, the Colossians, a church he had actually never visited or met or seen. That body of believers he loved so deeply and greatly that he was saying, I'm rejoicing in my suffering for you. He wasn't rejoicing in his status, his authority, his fame. He was rejoicing in his suffering for them. Alexander McLaren, speaking of this verse, put it this way, referring to Paul. This bird sings in a darkened cage. That's poignant. Speaking of Paul, he's got every reason to be doom and gloom and to complain, but he's singing his praise, his rejoicing for these dear people. And what a great reminder that is for all of us. Sitting here this morning, as we seek to serve and minister to our families in the year ahead with this new school year upon us, as we think about fall ministries kicking off and starting all that back up again in a couple of weeks, what a great reminder for all of us that is that to know that like Paul, we have the ability to serve Christ and, and minister to the needs of others in the body even to the point of being willing to suffer in doing so or experience a little inconvenience in doing so and to do so joyfully, without grumbling, without complaining. As we continue on working through this passage, Paul next says, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church. Paul here is actually broadening out what he said earlier in the passage, that he was suffering for the Colossians' sake, that's what it means by I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, you at Colossae. He's now saying, he's expanding the thought to say he's suffering for the universal church, the whole body of Christ. Similar to the church at Colossae, there were many other assemblies of believers in Paul's day to which he was either indirectly or directly connected, and each of which he was equally and earnestly a servant. We see this in his various greetings to all the churches to whom he wrote, right? Romans 1, 7, to all who are beloved in Rome. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Ephesians 1, 11, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Philippians 1, 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes to them all, he ministers to them all. And as we saw back in Colossians 1.18, a few weeks ago, Christ is the head of the body, the church, which is a reference not only to that specific gathering of believers there at Colossae in Paul's day, but to the universal church, spanning continents and centuries and people groups and languages from the day of Pentecost, which is the day when the church started, to the future day of the rapture, which will wrap up the present church age. Paul viewed himself not only as a servant of this particular church, one he was willing to joyfully suffer for, but he saw himself as suffering for the church at large. To borrow from Colossians 1, 5, and 6, he was suffering for that church that had been birthed by the fact that the gospel had gone out and was bearing fruit and increasing. 
Paul's life was entirely consumed with seeing the body of Christ established, nourished, and growing into the conformity of the image of Christ. He rejoiced even in the midst of his own suffering as he saw believers being built up in the faith wherever they were. All that's wrapped up into what he says here in verse 24 where he says, In my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church. Now as we come to the final words here, verse 24, Paul adds some additional color and detail to the purpose of his suffering. And in doing so, as we look at the end of verse 24 here, Paul single-handedly, I don't know if he knew he was doing this, created a cottage industry of commentators who have spilled enormous amounts of ink trying to figure out what he was saying here. As he describes the sufferings on behalf of both the Colossian church and the universal church of his day as filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, right away, you can see how various people of Different theological tribes and camps have taken this language and run with it in a completely wrong direction. Filling up what is lacking. So Jesus didn't really pay it all. So there's something that his atoning death didn't accomplish on the cross that I now need to sort of supplement and fill in the details with. So his afflictions, his sufferings were somehow lacking. It's incumbent upon me to, to fill what was ever left unfilled by him, to finish the job, as it were. Well, we need to work through this part of this text very carefully so that we not only not step into any theological landmines, but so that we walk out of here having a correct, biblically informed idea of what's actually being said. First, we just have to say it up front. There is no way that this part of the passage where he says, He's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There's no way that that can mean that Christ's atoning death was an incomplete atonement. Or that his death was in any way insufficient to pay for our sin debt. No, no, the testimony of scripture is the exact opposite. Consider just a couple of passages from the book of Hebrews. Like Hebrews 10.10 says, We've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Or Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by one offering, he is perfected for all time, those who are sanctified. Or look up the page in, in Colossians, at Colossians 1, 20, where it says, he made peace through the blood of his cross. Past tense, accomplished, it's already been done. Or Colossians 1, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. It's been done. Or in Colossians 2, 13, we're going to see that he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. It's been done. It's complete. All that to say, back here in verse 24 of chapter 1, we know that what Paul cannot be saying is that Christ's atoning sacrifice was somehow incomplete or inadequate. No, the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross happened once for all, and it was completely effective. When he said it is finished in John 19.30, he meant it. He bore the wrath of God for our sin entirely. He truly did pay it all. Next, what I want us to notice here is that Paul, in verse 24, is linking his own sufferings with what he calls Christ's afflictions at the end of the verse there. At the beginning of verse 24, he talks about how he's rejoicing in his sufferings for their sake. And then, Almost in one breath now, he's mentioning Christ's afflictions. So 
what's happening there? Well, what's happening is Paul sees his sufferings as Christ's sufferings. He sees his sufferings as though they're being directed toward Christ. And that's a connection that goes all the way back again to his Damascus Road experience in Acts chapter 9. I should have had you stay there. Go back with me, please, to to Acts chapter 9, where we see the early experience of Paul, then Saul, and how that would have informed this idea of his suffering leading to Christ's afflictions. Look at Acts 9. We'll just pick it up in verse 1. And remember, this is Paul before he's Paul. He's Saul now. He's Saul of Tarsus. He's this fanatical Pharisee. He's doing all he can to stamp out this new sect of people who are worshiping this crucified Galilean. We know from Acts 8, 1, that he was earlier in hearty agreement with the execution of Stephen, the first recorded Christian martyr. But now in Acts 9, 1, we get some information here that I believe colors what he will say later in Colossians about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Look at Acts 9.1. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he, if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Saul, at this point, had not been consciously persecuting Jesus. Rather, from his vantage point, he was persecuting the followers of Jesus, the ones of the way. That's how he was thinking about it. But he learned from this episode back in Acts 9 that in persecuting believers and causing them to suffer, he was, in fact, persecuting their Savior. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, the church is Christ's body. And when it is affected, he is affected. As one commentator put it, the head in heaven feels the sufferings of his body on earth. So what Paul is saying here back in verse 24 of Colossians 1, when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, is that he was willingly and readily taking on the afflictions that were directed toward Christ. Just as in his former life as Saul, he was afflicting others who were identified with Christ, and by doing doing so, affecting Christ himself. Now, as one who was identified with Christ, as an ambassador of Christ, as an apostle of Christ, he was on the receiving end of of the suffering that he once caused. No longer causing suffering to those who aligned with Christ, he was now willing to suffer for Christ and to be identified with Christ's own sufferings. There's a real parallel there between what he's saying here and what he'll say in Philippians 3.10, where he speaks of wanting to know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So we've looked at the relationship between the words suffering and affliction, namely by Paul here saying, rejoicing in his suffering for your sake, he's linking that to Christ's afflictions. But we still need to deal with that word that makes all of us uncomfortable, lacking. What does that word mean? Lacking, And what does it mean here in context? What does it mean that there was something lacking in Christ's afflictions? Here's what it means, and I hope you'll lock in on this because I don't want you to think I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here as I explain this. On the one hand, Christ's saving work, namely his 
His work on the cross is done. We've already gone over that. The death he died, he died once for all, and his death was sufficient to pay for the sins of mankind. Colossians 1.22, past tense, says we've been reconciled in his fleshly body through death. There is nothing lacking in Christ's death. God sent the son on his reconciling mission, and mission was accomplished. But on the other hand, Christ's saving plans have not yet been fully accomplished. Yes, all that was needed for salvation was secured through the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord, but not all who have been appointed unto salvation have actually gotten saved. There's still something that has to happen. There's still work that needs to be done. There's still something that must happen between Christ died on the cross, that was 2,000 years ago, and Christ has brought in all of his elect. That has not happened yet. So Christ's saving work is done, but his saving purposes have not been finally realized. And how do I know that? How do we know that? Because we're still here. Because we haven't been taken out of this place. Because the rapture hasn't occurred. That's what Paul is referring to here in verse 24 when he's saying he's filling up with what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's saying that, yes, Christ suffered so that we might be saved. But he was crucified. Meaning, Today, he is not personally in the flesh calling on people to repent and believe. And he's not personally, though there would be many charismatic groups who would disagree with me, calling on people in visions and dreams and such to repent and believe. Rather, what he's doing is he's using his spokespersons, apostles in Paul's day, people like you and me in our day, to serve as his ambassadors, to proclaim and to spread his gospel. In that respect, what is lacking in Christ's affliction was being filled in a servant like Paul. It's being filled in servants like you and me today as we go out and as we proclaim his gospel and experience whatever suffering may come as a result. Again, I'm intentionally belaboring this point to make sure we're getting it and so we're not confused on this because there has been massive confusion over this text. Paul isn't saying that our suffering is somehow added to Christ's suffering and there's this now this mixture of us and him and that now his death and his atonement are sufficient because of what we've contributed. No, what he's saying here is through, that through our own ministry of reconciliation as his followers, as his ambassadors, through our proclamation of the gospel and through any suffering we experience through our proclamation of his gospel, we fill up completely what he doesn't do here bodily anymore because he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's left it to us to proclaim his message. So as Christians, we identify with Christ in every respect. Colossians 2.12, we've been buried with him in baptism. We've been raised up with him through faith. And we share in his dying and we share in his rising and in his living. But as we also see this morning, we also share in his suffering. We have to remember what our Lord said through his own words during his earthly ministry. Like in John 18, 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Or remember what he says in Matthew 10, 24, that a slave is not above his master. Well, our master suffered. And the point is, so will we. And the question is, as we do so, Will we do so with the perspective here of Paul, joyfully, fulfilling Christ's mission for us and for the sake of his body, the church? 
speaking of the church, that brings us to our second verse and our second point for this morning. Look at verse 25. He says, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. So in our first point, we saw what it means to suffer for the church. In our second point, if you're a note taker, we're going to look at what it means to serve the church. And all centers here on verse 25 and Paul's use of these words now of this church. Now here, he's not limiting himself again to the Colossian church. He's, he's fanned out his focus here. Rather, these words of this church point back to verse 24, where Paul speaks of Christ's body, which is the church, the universal church. Of that church, the universal church, the church at large, Paul was made a minister. Now again, made a minister, which we see linked back to verse 23, which is underscoring the fact that Paul was no self-willed, self-made minister. Rather, God appointed him to be such. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15.10 where Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now continuing on in verse 25, it says, Paul says he was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Now that word stewardship is a compound word in the Greek, oikonomia. And it literally means house law. And smooth out a bit, it's referring to a person who's charged with overseeing or, or managing or caring for a household. Now we know from scripture that the church is called the household of God. First Timothy 3.15 speaks of the church not only as the pillar and support of the truth, but also the household of God. And Paul, in his unique ministry as an apostle to these Gentile churches of this day, had this task of caring for and tending to these churches. He established many of these churches. He visited many of them. He prayed for them. He sent associates to them. He wrote letters to them. He encouraged them in those letters. He admonished them. He rebuked them. He did everything he could to care for these churches, which God had entrusted to his care. God had given Paul this stewardship. And like a, a good household manager, Paul was responsible to carry out all that God had entrusted to him as a servant and to do so faithfully. Next, Paul says that his ministry, his stewardship, still in verse 25 here, was bestowed on me for your benefit. Now, as he says that, there are really two things happening here. First, for your benefit, that the real emphasis on here is on that word your. It's like, for your benefit? What's in mind here is that these are Gentiles. It's still a fascinating proposition that Paul has been set apart, this former Pharisee of Pharisees, to minister in this specific way to Gentiles, goyim, non-Jewish people. Peter was given the charge to minister to the Jews. Paul was given the charge to minister to the Gentiles. But the other thing about this language, for your benefit, here in verse 25, is just the common sense meaning that that term has. This stewardship that had been given to Paul by God was not to be for his benefit, or for his enrichment, or for his status, or, or for his favor, but instead for the benefit of these Colossian believers. And that's such an important reminder for all of us in this body of believers, as members of this body, to think that whatever we've been entrusted with here in this church, with whatever gifts, or whatever resources, or whatever relationships, it's ultimately not something, or these haven't been given to us for our use, or our benefit, or our gain, but instead for the benefit of others. Now, I know that we have a long-standing 
history and culture of dedicated service here at Indian Hills. And praise the Lord for that. And I know that there have been many of you in this body who have been giving sacrificially of what the Lord has entrusted with you or to you for many years and in some cases many decades. Again, praise God for that. But I also know that the Lord continues to bring a lot of new people to our church to be a part of what he is doing here. And so my challenge to you on the authority of God's word here, whether you're new here or if you're a long-term pew potato, is that you get in the game. That you step off the sideline. That you get on the field. That you not be a mere spectator, but rather an active participant in life in the body of Christ here. That you consider this church or or wherever you find yourself at your home church, not to simply be a place where you learn a few things and go home, box checked, but rather that you center and arrange your life around life in the body of Christ. That's the very way God has designed us to live and to function as believers, no matter what period of history we were born in. No matter how busy our Monday through Saturday was. And if you have any questions or need any help in getting connected in that way or or getting on the field, see Aaron, Pastor Aaron Nicholson, or myself after service. We'll get you going. All right, the last thing Paul mentions here in verse 25 as he rounds out this discussion of what it means to serve the church is this. He says, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That was the capstone of Paul's stewardship to the Gentile churches, including this church at Colossae. He was to preach the word of God. Now note that phrase, the preaching of the word of God, is not actually being used in the way that we would think of the term uh, today. He's not talking about verse by verse, line by line, expository preaching in, in this context, like what I'm doing right now. Rather, he has something else in view, which is gonna be colored by what he's gonna say later in verses 26 and 27 when he's talking about this mystery. In fact, that's what he's doing. He's equating the word of God here in verse 25 with the mystery that's been entrusted to him. That mystery being Christ himself and and specifically Christ's gospel fanning out to and bringing salvation to Gentile believers like the Colossians. So one last thing before we get to verses 26 and 27, before we talk about that mystery I want you to note here in verse 25 that Paul expresses his desire to carry out fully, to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. There was never any halfway with Paul. He wasn't worried about vacation days. He wasn't worried about his benefits package or sabbaticals or the sniffles or mental health breaks. No, he went full throttle. So impassioned was he and so committed was he to the unique work and stewardship the Lord gave him that he worked hard at it. He embodied the hardworking farmer that he himself would describe in 2 Timothy 2.6. He was the unashamed workman of 2 Timothy 2.15. That was Paul's commission. That was Paul's stewardship to faithfully proclaim this mystery to to the Gentile churches and to Gentile people. And he carried that task faithfully, executed on that task faithfully to the very end, which is why we see him in 2 Timothy 4, 7, say those famous words often used at funerals. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. 
That's just saying he worked hard, diligently to the very end. But as he wrote this letter to the Colossians, this is well before the end for Paul, his work wasn't quite done. There was still much to do. There was still this task of fully carrying out the preaching of the word of God, as it says in verse 25, which Paul will now expand on in verses 26 and 27. So note takers, we've seen what it means to suffer for the church. We've seen what it means to serve the church. Here in verses 26 and 27.3, we see what it means to show the church. See, here in our next two verses, we're going to see Paul showing the Colossian believers what he had been entrusted with preaching to them, showing them what they are the undeserving beneficiaries of, namely, the mystery of what he's about to speak. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, that is, and that links back to the preaching of the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now verse 26 here leads off with a word, mystery, that Paul used often in his writings. He used this word to describe the partial hardening of Israel, the mystery of that. In Romans eleven twenty five, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He used this word, mystery, to describe God's hidden wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 2, 7, he says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. He uses this word mystery to describe the coming rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. He uses this word mystery to describe God's will. Ephesians 1, 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. He uses the word mystery to describe the mystery of faith. 1 Timothy 3, 9, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And he describes last the word mystery to describe godliness. 1 Timothy three sixteen. great is the mystery of godliness. In other words, Paul was not at all shy about using this word, mystery, in writing on a variety of different subjects. And, and here in Colossians, the word may not actually think what your first reaction would be to what you think it means. Our reaction to this word mystery, like it was in Colossae at this time, might be something like secret knowledge or, or hidden knowledge. Knowledge that's only used or reserved to an exclusive group, otherwise unknown to the masses. But Paul here, as he's going about this, this task of describing the word of God, verse 25, that he's been called to preach, he actually reclaims and repurposes this word mystery for what it actually means, which was, and here's the meaning, something that was once concealed, but is now revealed. Something that was once concealed, but is now revealed. And, and note what Paul is doing here. He's, he's done this already in this letter. He's actually claiming and repurposing a word that the false teachers had been using. He's beating the false teachers once again at their own game. Like we saw earlier that they used the word fullness or completeness. They thought that they had full knowledge, complete knowledge, and Paul takes that word back from them. 
He's doing the same thing here with the word mystery. He is in a, in a very godly way, stealing the word back from them to accomplish his own purposes. And he's using that word mystery to speak again of something that was once concealed, but is now revealed. That's really a paraphrase of verse 26, where he says, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages, in other words, concealed, has now been manifested to the saints. In other words, revealed. And what is Paul describing here? What is this mystery? Well, he's talking about the church. And he's talking about its involvement in God's plan of redemption. The church is the reference point throughout this section of this letter. The church is identified back in verse 24 as the body for whom Paul suffered. The church is identified in verse 25 as the body of which Paul was made a minister. And the church is still in view here in verse 26 when he speaks of this mystery. The mystery is that the church is included in God's program of salvation and redemption. Now, as 21st century Christians, we can be careless and kind of yawn when we hear that language. We can take the idea of the church and the gospel and the fact that it's come to middle America for granted. But we really have to be careful not to do that. We have to remember that God's attention has not always been on the church. Rather, his focus for several thousand years was exclusively on Israel, not the church, not America, Israel. The church did not experience the exodus. The church did not wander around the wilderness. The church didn't enter the promised land. Israel did all of those things. The church was unknown to the Old Testament. It only was revealed in the new In fact, the church didn't even exist during the time Christ walked the earth. When our Lord spoke of the church in in Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock, I will build my church, it didn't exist. It was still a, a yet future concept. No, the church was born and had its existence begin at Pentecost, like we see in Acts chapter two, when the, the first believers received the Holy Spirit. And we know from what Paul himself reveals that in its earliest days, Paul, back then Saul, was a persecutor of that very early church. But then, as we've looked at today, he eventually became a steward and a servant of this very church that he had earlier tried to stamp out. But the church was, in terms of God's overall plans of of redemption, a mystery, something once concealed, but now revealed. And note this mystery, something once concealed, now revealed, was not that the Gentiles would simply receive blessing or or favor from God. That that was no mystery. That was actually revealed all the way back in Genesis 12 uh, with, with Abram, that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Rather, the mystery, the thing once concealed and now being revealed, was the manner in which Gentiles and Jews would become fellow heirs through Christ. In fact, turn back with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3 where we're going to see Paul laying out this mystery, the details of this mystery, with far greater detail than he does here in Colossians 1. Look at Ephesians 3, and starting in verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, 
as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The mystery then is that both Jew and Gentile would be united in one spiritual body, sharing equally in the spiritual blessings of the same body and sharing the same eternal hope of glory. No longer that middle wall or that dividing wall of partition between them, as Ephesians 2.14 puts it. So he's just, in Ephesians 3 here, giving us a fuller expression of what he says in Colossians 1.26. And that's now been manifested, back to Colossians, to his saints. That mystery has been manifested to his saints, meaning the church. Now, in verse 27, Paul ties together just a couple more related thoughts. He adds, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We'll take these one by one. First, he says, God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. Paul here could have said, God willed to make known the mystery, or he could have said, God willed to make known the glory of this mystery, but instead he says, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. This is superlative language, meaning Paul is just stacking word upon word here to emphasize the significance of the mystery he's just described. The mystery, again, being those who were once furthest away from God are now brought near through the blood of Christ. F.B. Meyer once put it this way, that he, Christ, should dwell in the heart of a child of Abraham was deemed a marvelous act of condescension, but that he should find a home in the heart of a Gentile was incredible. And that's exactly what's involved in this mystery. And then next, Paul further elaborates on the riches of the glory of this mystery by identifying it this way at the end of verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And here's our culminating truth. Whether Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female, Galatians 3.28, the person who has put their trust in Jesus Christ, the person who has had their sins forgiven, the person who now has been granted eternal life, they are already in Christ. They've been placed in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Or Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. But as we see here, through his spirit, Christ is also in them. Christ is also in us. He is also in his believer, his believers. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Or Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Christ doesn't take up temporary residence in the believer. No, his is a permanent residence, which secures what Paul calls here the hope of glory. Meaning our, our confident assurance that he is preparing a place for us where we will worship him forever, for eternity. 
with no need for anything else or, or anyone else. That's the Christian's hope of glory. We have hope laid up for us in heaven, Colossians 1.5, but all who are in Christ and all who have Christ in us have this hope of glory, which we see encapsulated in Colossians 3.4, which says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So in our text for today, we've seen Paul, as he's carrying on this ministry of the mystery Model for us as followers of Christ what it means to suffer for the church, what it means to serve the church, and what it means to show the church. In his case, this mystery of the gospel. And the question for all of us this morning as we leave, as we go on our way, is what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with what the word has taught us today? Are we going to be these spiritual cul-de-sacs who take all this in, but are otherwise completely unaffected and have no desire to pass this through into our lives, whether with fellow believers or to the watching world? Or rather, are we going to be spiritual conduits who take in what we've heard today and look intentionally for ways to model it in our lives as Paul here modeled it for the Colossians? I know you know what the right answer is to that question. As we close, I'm going to give you a final word from Romans 16, which really ties together all that Paul has said here. And this is actually going to serve as my closing prayer for us this morning. Uh, Romans 16, 25 through 27. The last three verses of Romans. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret from long ages past but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen.